Okay, well, we will be in the book of Nahum, but before we get there, let's talk about, for just a minute, uh, various types of prayers. I don't, I always forget that I can, it's a Bible class, it's a Wednesday night, so I'm going to throw it out there. Give me some types of prayer. I'll, I'll give you one just to kind of prime the pump. Adoration is one, right? Adoration, I have a God and he is good, right? Adoration, so we're adoring God. What else? Petition. Oh, that's a good one, right? I have a request, right? I have a need, so I need you to help me with my need, God. What else? Adoration, petition. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Good. Yeah. Thank you for the things that you've given me. Absolutely. Gratitude. Expressing that gratitude. What else? What's that? A complaint. Okay. Absolutely. And we'll get into that just a little bit. But yeah, a complaint. That's good. Sometimes I have a, I have a problem, right? I have a problem. What else? Forgiveness, okay, yeah, absolutely. Asking for, petitioning for forgiveness, yeah. Praise, Praise. Praise. absolutely, yeah, that kind of goes into the adoration and, yeah, praising God for, for who he is and not only who he is, but also what he's done. Thanks, you. Confession, yes, I have a sin, right? I've, I've done wrong and confessing our, our sins to God. Any more you can think of? How about intercession, right? Intercessing for someone else, like going to God. Not, not just that I have a problem, but my friend has a problem, and he needs your help with, with that. There's another type of prayer, and it kind of goes to what John said a minute ago about complaint. Um, the, the fancy word is an imprecatory, an imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory prayer. And we don't typically talk about imprecatory prayers or psalms. In fact, there's even debate amongst theologians and preachers and, you know, should we even... Should we even pray an imprecatory prayer or, you know, say or sing imprecatory psalms? Anybody know what an imprecatory prayer is or psalm? It's when you're cursing your enemies. When you're cursing your enemies. That's exactly right. Where you're saying, God, kill him, destroy him, bring him down, right? And, and it's, they're very rough. But if you've read through the psalms, you know that there's plenty of those there, right? David and the other psalmists would pray these types of imprecatory um, prayers and sing these imprecatory uh, psalms. And I, I have this thought, and I want to throw this out for you, but I, I wrote it all down so that I would make sure that I said it this way. But I, I think there's a huge difference, a huge difference between an imprecatory prayer or psalm and vengeance. In fact, I think they're polar opposites. It sounds a lot, it sounds vengeful, doesn't it? Like, bring him down and make him sorry that he ever did this to me. But consider this, a vengeful person has no need for imprecatory prayers. Why? Because he's determined to vanquish his own enemies, right? He's not praying, God, bring him down. He's saying, I will bring you down. I'm going to punish you for all the things that you've done to me. But a, a person... A person who's praying an imprecatory prayer, that the implication is that this person has already embraced the truth that vengeance is God's. It's not mine. It's his. And so by praying these types of prayers, by singing these types of psalms, a person is saying, I want you to do the judging. I want you to do the punishing. So only a meek person, and we spent a whole quarter talking about meekness, right, a persecuted person who entrusts his enemies to God, only a meek person who has entrusted his enemy's fate to God 
voices an imprecatory prayer. And a meek person only does so in the most extreme situations. Right? Can, does that make sense? That by, by saying these things, we are, a person is, I, I shouldn't even say we, and I, we'll talk more about that in a second, but, but this is, this is a, an extreme type of situation. A situation I, I really can't even, I really can't even understand because I've never been in a situation where I think it would even have been appropriate for me to pray such a prayer or sing such a song. But there have certainly been many events and periods of history where it's understandable that someone would, right? I think about the Holocaust. I put a couple pictures. This is one reason why I didn't want there to be any kids. But, but I mean, you've seen pictures of the concentration camps. That's a, a wagon load, a trailer load of bodies that were not burned in the crematorium after that concentration camp was was liberated. And then the next one is a picture of some of the prisoners from concentration camp. So we can understand, maybe, maybe we can. I don't know that I can really understand that there have been periods of history where people have been so afflicted and oppressed and so abused and murdered and horrible things done to them. Their homes plundered, their families raped and murdered, They've been enslaved. So many periods of human history where this has been the case. And the anav, the meek, as we talked about at length for a whole quarter, are those people of God's people who say, vengeance is yours, Lord. You bring them down. You bring this consequence upon their head. You bring them to judgment. And, and a meek person prays that truly in trusting that God will do what God does. So Nahum is a book that not only describes the destruction of Nineveh. You remember Nineveh is where, who went? Jonah, right? Jonah. So we had Jonah and then we talked about Micah. Now Nahum is another book about Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, right? And Assyria was... A huge, big, bad, oppressive empire, right? Again, like many throughout history, and we could name them off of empires that would go through uh, various regions, would enslave the people, would murder the people, would rape the people, would pillage what they had, take what they wanted, and move on to other places, or enslave the people and deport them to come and be their slaves back home. And so Assyria, like many other empires and nations and kingdoms, did that exact thing. And the book of Nahum not only describes Nineveh's destruction and downfall, like, hey, God is going to bring you down, but really you could even say celebrates Nineveh's downfall. And I would say that Nahum is probably the answer of many imprecatory prayers. But can, can we understand why? Can you understand why if, if you had been starved and enslaved and murdered and all of these things done to you, why it would be appropriate for you to say, Vengeance is yours, Lord. Bring these people to judgment. Your will be done. And so the destruction of Nineveh happened about 612 BC. And this book, this 
prophecy describes it and even celebrates Nineveh's destruction. So let's look at the text. Nahum chapter 1, starting at verse 1. I want to read the whole thing to you. It's Again, we're in the Minor Prophets, so it's short. Um, and I, I just kind of want us to, to see it from both perspectives. I want, I want you to think about the perspective not only of Israel and all of the nations and people that Nineveh, that the Assyrians had abused and enslaved and trampled upon, um, but also think about it from Nineveh's perspective. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now I want you to look at verse 3 and, and notice this. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, isn't that interesting that in a passage where the Lord's anger and jealousy and vengeance and wrath is not only being described, it's even being celebrated. That even in that context, Nahum would say the Lord is what? Slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So you see kind of the contrast there? The Lord is slow to anger and he will by no means clear the guilty. And over and over, you'll, you'll see kind of those two ideas put side by side throughout Nahum, that God is good and that God is, is merciful and that God is a protector and God is a savior and God is a deliverer and God is also a God of wrath and vengeance and he will bring down these evil, wicked empires and nations and rulers, he will bring them down. So which of those is a good thing that's worth celebrating? Okay, that, that's worth celebrating. And is the other worth celebrating? Yes. If you are Israel, right? If you are Israel. If you are Israel and you are the oppressed and the afflicted, then you are joyful that you can trust God, that justice will be served. It's not yours to carry out, it's his to carry out, but you can celebrate and rejoice in the fact that God will bring judgment. And Nahum certainly does celebrate that. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now look at verse 7. The Lord is what? Good. All of this is good. It's not good if you're an Assyrian, right? It's not good if you're oppressive. It's not good if you're wicked. It's not good if you're evil. You're not going to like it, but it is good that God brings judgment on, on the wicked, on those that are doing these horrible, horrible things. And again, it's hard for me to even imagine these horrible things being carried out. But if we've studied history, we know it has been 
over and over and over and over again. And even though we're, we are sort of isolated from it, it's still going on in the world, isn't it? In fact, some people say that there are more slaves today than at any point in human history. In fact, I think I've even heard that there are more slaves today than, at any, uh, than all of history combined. There are millions and millions and millions of people across the world that are oppressed and enslaved. But it's really easy for us that are kind of removed from all of that to look and say, yeah, but that's just so, this book is just so mean. It's just so harsh. It's really not though, is it? That God delivers people. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold. In the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Imagine just a bunch of weeds and thorns and thistles and stubble all tangled up and dried out and lighting a match to it. And Nahum says that's, that's the way God is with his enemies. will rip through them like fire. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord. Now this part is, is put in the Lord's words. So this is God speaking. Though they are at full strength and many they will be cut down and pass away. Now again, if, if you are Israel, whose entire homeland has been destroyed by the Assyrians, and you've been carried off into exile, and you've been oppressed by these people, or if you're any of the other groups of people that have been hurt and damaged and stomped all over by the Assyrians, and they are huge and mighty and strong, or if you think about any of the world empires that have done these kinds of things, and when they're at their height, and they're strong, and they are many, you think, this will never end. These people will never be brought down. You ever watch, I know this is a silly example, but I, I need a little bit of silliness tonight, because it's so heavy stuff, but you ever watch like the, the Lord of the Rings movies, you know? And, and there are those scenes where, you know, they're on the wall and then the, the orcs, the bad guy, you know, are just coming and they're just a multitude, just as far as you can see. There, there's been many times in human history where that wasn't a fantasy film. That wasn't a fantasy idea. That was reality. Like locusts came in and would devour entire fields of crops. That's how these nations have been. And they've just eaten up the world. And when they're so strong and so many and they're so powerful and you think as a person who's been oppressed and enslaved and hurt by these people, this will never end. The truth is, the reality is, God will bring them down. Judgment will happen. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. And then, sort of switching gears again, and then speaking to those that are enslaved, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. This goes hand in hand, doesn't it? 
breaking the, the slave free and bringing down those that did the enslaving, right? They go hand in hand. It's not part of it that's good and part of it that's bad. It's all good. This is what God will do. And those that have been the anav, the, the meek, the persecuted, the afflicted, trust God that even though they're strong and many, this will happen. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings, what? Good news. Good news. Who publishes peace. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom, right? Shalom. And peace means in this context, especially the end, of, the end of the war, the end of the conflict, the end of the oppression. But it also means more than that. It means abundance. It means having everything that you need. And, and even though it's hard for you to imagine when the, when the evil and the wicked are so strong and so many, the prophet says, and God says, the, the feet of the messenger are bringing good news. Their day is over. Good news. The enemy has been brought down. Good news. Shalom for all of God's people. Peace. Prosperity. The end of the oppression. The end of the conflict. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worth off. And I just want you to kind of sit with that for a second. Isaiah uses similar types of language about the messenger that brings good news. And Paul uses this exact type of language in Romans chapter 10. You remember? And he says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. Euangelion. What's, what's our word that for, for good news? Gospel, right? Gospel. In what way is Jesus, in what way is Jesus the fulfillment? In what way is Jesus the gospel, the good news that God's persecuted people have been waiting for? In what way did the people of his day, the people of Jesus' day, in what way were their hopes and dreams fulfilled in Jesus? In what way are the people of the world today supposed to hear good news? Good news, because this is the context of that statement, of that term, of that idea. Gospel. Messiah is here. So in what, in what way is that true? In what way is Jesus the, not only the one who brings the good news, but the one who is home? In what way is he the fulfillment? And we'll talk more about this in a second, but one part of that, I think, has to be the fact that Jesus removes the power of the evil one, doesn't he? If, if the worst that an evil one can do to God's people is to kill them, and Jesus comes in and he removes the permanency of death through his own atoning sacrifice and resurrection. And he removes, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, he removes the sting of death. 
Or as the Hebrew writer puts it, so that God's people do not have to be enslaved to a constant lifelong fear of death. He takes it away from all of his people. And he takes away the permanency of death so that they no longer have to fear death. Then there is a sense in which we now currently live in shalom. Right? The enemy has already been defeated. The sting of the enemy, the power of the enemy has already been taken away. But there's a sense in which we are also still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of that good news. When, as Paul puts it again, when death itself, 1 Corinthians 15, which is the last enemy, is destroyed and there is no more death and there is no more sin, Jesus is the victor. And we get to not only be the ones who hear this good news, but the ones who get to share it with the world, right? As Paul says in Romans 10, how can can the world hear this good news, this peace, this word that, that, that the enemies of God have been destroyed and are being destroyed and will be destroyed? And God's people are being set free unless we we take that message to the world. We'll talk more in a second. Chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. I'm about to bring you down. I'm about to attack you. You better prepare. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Do you see, again, how these things go hand in hand? I'm bringing them down and I'm bringing you up. I'm bringing down the oppressor and I'm bringing up my people who have been oppressed. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away its mistress is stripped she is carried off her slave girls lamenting moaning like doves and beating their breasts Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away halt halt they cry but none turns back plunder the silver plunder the gold there is no end to the of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things I mean these are terrifying words For anybody in Nineveh, but for those who have been oppressed by the Assyrians, they're words of good news, right? That this city that has been so well protected, this city that's been so strong, and this city that's been guilty of so much bloodshed and so much oppression and so many horrible things, there's pretty soon where it's going to be like like water that just evaporates and runs away, and it's all going to be gone, desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? Listen to this metaphor. I mean, it's just, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where, the, where his cubs were with none to disturb? With none to disturb. Can you picture that in your head. Can you picture a den of lions 
where there's all these lions and, I mean, who's going to mess with them, right? I mean, they're a group of lions and nobody's going to take away their food. Nobody's going to hurt them. Nobody's going to come in and mess with them. And they're just there enjoying the, their take. The lion tour enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So, I mean, do you see the, the double idea in that metaphor? On the one hand, there's safety because they're lions and they're in a den. And there's an abundance. They have all the food in the world that they could possibly want. But there's also violence and death. They're tearing apart their prey. And Nahum says this is exactly what Nineveh has been. A den of lions that's been eating and destroying with none to disturb them. And they're just hanging out, tearing people limb from limb. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots and smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. They crack the whip, they rumble the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. You think it's bad, it's about to get worse. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes? And Thebes was an Egyptian city that fell about 50 years prior to Nineveh's fall. That sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit, Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will be, go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses, now picture this metaphor, all your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. So he says, your fortresses are like fig trees and everyone in it is like figs. If shaken, shaking that fig tree, shaking that fortress, they fall into the mouth of the eater. So imagine somebody just standing at the bottom of the tree, shaking it and the figs falling into their mouth and he says, that's how your fortresses will be shaken and they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst, 
The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and nobody knows where they are. Multiply, multiply all of your merchants and all of your princes and all of your nobles. There are so many of them and you think you're so strong and you think you're so powerful, but just like the grasshopper and just like the locust, when the season changes or the sun rises, they're gone. They fly away and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is, listen to these words, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Wow. The whole world is going to cheer when you come down. Because everybody has felt your evil. It's just, I, I know I started this way, but I, I just have such a hard time even really understanding this book or these words because they are so harsh, aren't they? And, and of course, I have a hard time understanding these words. Of course, most of us have probably a hard time understanding these words because our homes have never been plundered and destroyed. I've never been enslaved, Camp. I've never had my friends and family put into an oven or a gas chamber. I've never seen my friends crucified upon the streets. I've never seen someone stoned to death. I've never been arrested and mistreated because of where I come from, or what I look like, or what language I speak. I live in a powerful nation, and I am protected by the laws of that nation. But I can't help but think, now listen, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that America is just as bad as Nazi Germany or as Assyria or as Babylon or as Rome or as Greece, but I can't help but think that somebody who was forced to relocate on the Trail of Tears might not better understand the sentiments of a book like Nahum than I can. I can't help but think that somebody who was a member of the slave population might not be able to understand the sentiments of a book like Nahum, the sentiments of imprecatory prayers that many people prayed over Assyria. Bring them down. I can't help but think that the people who were oppressed by Jim Crow laws 
might not better understand a book like Nahum than I do. People that were put into internment camps, I can't help but think they must understand that a little bit better than I do. I mean, the fact of the matter is that on a national scale or as a culture or who we are and the life we live, it's a lot closer to someone who lives in the empire and is protected by the empire than it is the people who were oppressed by it. But here's the thing. Even if we are, in many ways, Assyria, think about what Jesus has done. Think about what the king of the world has done. He has made us Israel by faith. He has defeated us, not by killing us, not by destroying us. He has defeated us by making us his own, by capturing our hearts and our minds, by changing us and grafting us into Israel's story. That's that's what he was doing for Romans in the first century, for Gentiles in the first century, for Greeks in the first century, taking people that were part of the empire and grafting them into the story of Israel. Now, for an Israelite, you can see, can't you, why that would be incredibly scandalous. You're going to take Romans and put them into our family? You're going to take Greeks and put them into our family? Don't you know what the Greeks have done to us? Don't you know what the Romans have done to us? Don't you know what the Babylonians have done to us? Don't you know what the Assyrians have done to us? Don't you know what their people and their kind are guilty of? And this good news that goes out to the world that Jesus is now in charge and Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he defeats his enemies by making them his own, by extending grace to them and mercy to them and grafting them into Israel's story. And that, you can see why in the first century that was a scandalous thing. You can see why for Paul it was a big deal for him to be treated, teaching and proclaiming a message of salvation for Jews and Greeks. But we're the Greeks. We're the Romans. We're the Babylonians. We're the Assyrians. We're the nations. We're the others. That Jesus has defeated us, not by destroying us, but by forgiving us and pardoning us, and grafting us into this family story. So now we become a part of God's people and do what Nahum was saying, take refuge in God. So I want to end every week with one one quote from each book. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Because I deserved all of the punishment. I deserve all of the punishment that came on Assyria. 
because those are my people, right? And I've joined with my father, Adam, in eating the fruit and rebelling against God, and I deserve punishment. But the king came, and he defeated me by making me his own. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now, that's not to say that there's not a day of judgment coming, because there is. And we still thank God that there is, that all of the evil and all of the wicked will be brought down and that justice will be served. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we associate with the lowly. We become the anav. We become the meek. We take refuge in him. And we go into the world and we proclaim this message. This is why love for our enemies is so incredibly important because we are the enemies. Right? We are the enemies that God loved. We are the enemies that God had mercy on. We are the enemies that instead of destroying us, he grafted us into his family. He adopted us instead of destroying us. So now we go out into the world and we share this good news that this is the kind of good God that we serve that will put them into his family. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, if when your son came, you brought what the world deserved, we, we wouldn't have even been born. We wouldn't even exist right now if the nations had gotten what they deserved. But instead of bringing judgment and wrath, you brought mercy and grace. And you've adopted both Jew and Gentile into your family by faith in Jesus. And Father, we are so incredibly thankful that we have this opportunity to be a part of your people and now to be a part of what you're doing in the world. We do ask, Father, that Jesus come quickly, that oppression and enslavement and murder and violence are brought to an end. But Father, in the meantime, thank you for having mercy on us and forgiving us. And we pray that your mercy and grace might be extended to as many as possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.